Welcome to Film Suck. We are back with an episode dealing with film stardom and stardom in general. We could call it stardom and stardummer. Um, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I'm really interested just to begin with such a basic question. Um, you know, Evgenia, do you do you have a, a star that you respond to that you like, that you follow and perhaps will, are willing to go see their films because the star is in it? Well... Yeah, as we talked before, but I'm, I have no shame about it. I feel like, <laughs> um, well, first of all, the great actor and the movie stars, like different things. Mm-hmm. And I do separate them, I guess, in my head. But the star, if you talk specifically about the movie star, that's definitely going to be Tom Cruise. Which, again, I, I find to be bold because I'm very into star shame myself. <laughs> and I've already, I'm, you'll, you'll hear later that we have an interview. Um, I confess that my, my, my star shame is, is that I have a huge thing about Daniel Craig, which it seems innately embarrassing to me. But you are not embarrassed at all. And that's I'm so not embarrassed. embarrassed. So what is it about Tom Cruise? Well, I think he's one of the, uh, well, he's obviously a movie star and not mm-hmm. a, uh, okay, he might be a great actor judging by Tropic Thunder, but that, we <laughs> right. can talk about it later. Usually he's like one thing, which is like a very kind of um, energetic squirrel who can like jump, run. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and he seems to put, I don't know what I, res- I guess like about him that he seems to put hundred and like 30 uh, percent of effort into <laughs> everything, into everything he, does. he does yeah which which seems like it pays off you go to the movie and he like and he delivers the latest film what is it the uh, out of the franchise mission impossible mm-hmm. i did see it in the movie theater it was like hor- it was really bad i forgot it's my be mission impossible six or something yeah something but like i have it. to say he's still he, he still runs mm-hmm. he's still good and um so i kind of got what I wanted, I guess, out of it. But he does seem to kind of now the signs of his age. Is he in his mid or late 50s now yes. sort of show up? And I did hear, and they're still the same. He still has the same kind of emploi and, you know, this kind of male hero. But in a few dramatic scenes that there were uh, with his love interest in this mm-hmm. Mission Impossible 6 or 7, people <laughs> were laughing. I feel like he can't fully do it in the straight manner anymore because uh-huh. just I don't know it has to change somehow his I think his characters or I don't know his film persona so that was kind of funny but I, I don't mind so I think uh, just backtrack to why I'm not even embarrassed <laughs> I look at this whole stardom thing with as um, kind of Mount Olympus mm-hmm. you know of the modern day and uh, you know I guess you can say Hollywood is Mount Olympus. Mm-hmm. And then if you think about it, even in the Iliad, it's not like the gods are that smart. They're just kind of famous and cruel and they have like power. And uh, I don't know if you can say that these actors have power, but we definitely treat them as gods and we look up to them to them as gods. And people even who, I guess, don't admit or say that the celebrity culture is just unimportant in their lives, they still mm-hmm. know who they are. Like mm-hmm. everyone knows who these people are. So it's kind of dumb to pretend that it's like doesn't matter at all mm-hmm. so in a way i think someone like tom cruise and there are obviously other characters it's part of their like olympus i, I don't know he's almost like some kind of zeus character <laughs> or I, okay you can find a better zeus obviously like a greater actor some kind of british experience yeah zeus. sean, but sean to, connery used to be compared yes, to okay. zeus all the time <laughs> fine i don't care about sean connery i might be a, i might be the younger generation that's yeah. why yeah. who knows but to me he's like i don't know he doesn't run that fast he's not as fit I mean, mm-hmm. I don't care. He doesn't put like 100 
20% into his James Bond part. Uh-huh. And I think, you know, Mission Impossible is like the modern day American, a bit of a hick James Bond, right? Right. Very it's good. Sort of hick. Very <laughs> so, and I like, yeah, I like, I like that. What, what do I care about, about it? The, uh, Sort of the original, more kind of gentleman James Bond. And I don't know who's Harris, and was would it be Nicole Kidman? I, I guess they're, oh my God. A, they're kind of good as Zeus and Harris, so I like them both. <laughs> yeah, I, got, I would have thought Harrod, no, uh, Harrow would be more like, I don't know. Meryl Streep, right? Yeah, Meryl Streep. Yeah. So but like, she's not yeah. a fit for Tom uh, Cruise, so in my Olympus, yeah. <laughs> this is not Meryl Streep. <laughs> I just can't picture you getting drawn to something about you and Tom Cruise that I just would never put together as you'd be drawn to that squirrel-like energy. I just, well, here, here you go. It's uh, not so much yeah. that you identify with it as that it's like a kind of excess that is just attractive to you for it's just (laughs) it is the squirrel energy but it's also something about the facial expression i don't know there's there's psychosis in there and i got i like that yeah it does sound like that we got a real look at when you know he fired his longtime publicity agent who'd been controlling his image that you for those of you who remember it all his career he had that patch where it looked like he might actually torpedo his own stardom it's where he started talking constantly about scientology he was jumping on the couch over his Mm -hmm. great love for katie holmes he just did a bunch of things that were that were having huge arguments about how psychiatry is mad and corrupt and should never be practiced Mm -hmm. and that's a scientology position and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden he was saying all the things that had been squelched for for decades Mm -hmm. by i forget her name now she's a famous um publicity agent she had kept it under wraps and you know i think he quickly within a year or two realized the damage he was doing and all that got you won't even remember it because he doesn't do those interviews anymore and he doesn't talk about that stuff anymore that all ended and of course he divorced you know katie holmes um so somehow he's he's under wraps Mm -hmm. again but that really interrupted people's sense of who he was because the psychotic and he really seemed like he was crazy, like he was in some mm-hmm. sort of terrible manic episode that was really going over the edge. I think the rumor goes, you might know more about it. Um, I just watched that Scientology film by uh-huh. Alex Gibney, right. uh, where Cruz is like one of the central characters in their mm-hmm. divorce with Nicole Kidman. So supposedly, actually, Scientology, um, since they have such a grip on mm-hmm. Tom Cruise, they partially caught it's like wanted to alienate him from Nicole Kidman because she actually is a more intellectual character. And I think her father is a psychi- Australian psychiatrist. Yeah. So she had some kind of probably somewhat negative, according to Scientology, influence on him. Mm-hmm. And they somehow managed to pull them apart. And now, since that divorce, they have a full control of this, I guess. I don't yes. know, it sounds insane of his mind, I guess. Oh no! Supposedly there are what a couple of, a couple of stars who know where the bodies are buried and and therefore mm-hmm. have huge control over Tom Cruise and John Travolta, and that's been the rumor for quite a while. Well, I was just going to say, that, but this is a great we're we're modeling right now the way stardom worked traditionally, like Hollywood mm-hmm. stardom, which is an equal fascination at least with what what is even rumored to go on behind the scenes of their actual personal lives and the way that can break through the image that people hold of them and that they see usually modeled in performances and sort of disturb the image because you're seeing things that don't fit with, with the star image. And so that tension between b- behind the image and the image is always been a a major way of defining stardom and Mm -hmm. so we're really doing it we're talking about the gossip about him the crazy period in his life all that stuff that's very very typical and it seems like that 
I'm not sure that happens as much anymore. I'm trying to remember. That was a huge scandal that got massive coverage and ever and lots and lots of people were really interested. I'm I'm trying to think of even the last Hollywood star scandal that that had anything like that kind of length or you know interest or people knowing mm-hmm. all about like what how the Scientologists were supposedly manipulating, you know, the relationship of him and Nicole Kidman and all that stuff. Um, I can't even think of a recent one, and I'm yeah. beginning to wonder if it's just not just not entirely dying out. Tom Cruise already seems like an old time star in many ways. I think that's true. Well, I don't know. I'm not following. I guess scandals that closely, but yeah, I I don't know any. Well, I think other the point is that, that, that at the time everyone knew. It seemed like there was a really wide reach. Like you wouldn't have mm-hmm. to try to try to follow it to hear about God. Tom Cruise has lost his mind, and he's do, saying and doing these crazy things. <laughs> But you know what what's interesting um I think it's a good segue into this. Um so the whole idea of the this studio system kind of coming to an end and mm-hmm. stars are, kind of can choose on their own the mm-hmm. parts they're not they're, they're not tied in this what seven year contracts how it used to be. Right, the really draconian mm-hmm. old ones 30s. Yeah. 40s, and they're yeah. kind of free to do whatever the hell they want. <laughs> in some ways, I, I mean, I'm just speculating, but isn't it almost in some ways can be worse for their psyche sometimes? If I don't know, Tom Cruise fully fell for this crazy Scientology thing, mm-hmm. but who wouldn't? Because he's treated as God. He's like multi, I don't know what, billionaire mm-hmm. or millionaire. And uh, he has kind of no necessarily guidance. And who is he initially? Some kind of like a hot guy from middle America who brought into this semi-post-studio age to the stardom and has no necessarily means to navigate this kind of insane mm-hmm. situation, which is fully insane. But yeah. it's only natural to fall for some kind of kooky yeah. shit, unless you are composed intellect. I don't even know what you have to be to not go crazy, actually. Right. And if you get anywhere near, you know, I got the, on the tiniest, farthest away fringes of Hollywood and the level of crazy, if you get anywhere near anyone who's getting a taste of any kind of success and getting into mm-hmm. rooms where they're rich and famous, they, they they go crazy. So imagine <laughs> what it's like at the epicenter. But yeah, I think it's yeah. right. It's a real toss up whether a kind of more, more or less crazy making. If you were in the old studio system, they ran your lives. They told you if you had to get an mm-hmm. abortion. They told you if you couldn't marry <laughs> that person. They, it just micromanagement. There were morals clauses mm-hmm. in the contracts. They directed your whole lives. On the other hand, a lot of people who got cut loose from those contracts when the studio system was ending mm-hmm. found themselves really feeling very, very helpless, even though, of course, you hire a team to help manage your stardom, which is, after all, your stardom is big business. Mm-hmm. Without someone directing, some massive institution directing how you'll behave, you're you're kind of thrown to the wolves, and which makes you nuts in many ways. Um, you're thrown to the wolves in another way, and now it's on you to direct this whole <laughs> this this whole massive um, um, business that surrounds you. That is you. You are the business. The business is you. <laughs> um, and you see people just f- freaking out a lot. Uh, you know, all that being hospitalized for exhaustion, which is code mm-hmm. usually for drugs, for a <laughs> mental breakdown, um, for for something that make you sound like stars now work, you know, every bit as much as hard as they did then under those contracts. And they most definitely yeah. do not. But I think it's there's a lot of people going who go yeah pretty damn crazy yeah yeah so so that studio studio system that you know way more than, mm. than I do that tied them in this crazy contracts but also in some ways do actors really know what roles are good for them uh, what mostly if the other not. people who man that's what I want to say I mean it's probably I would sound horrible they might not know they're just you know they're talented in some way that's 
like um, performers mm -hmm. and they have to be told what to do. Yeah. And that sometimes can be good, you know, and they don't have that anymore. Yeah, it does yeah. seem like for everyone that's super canny and knows exactly what works for them, <laughs> you know. And there's, yeah, I, I was well, later. I'll be talking a little bit about Cary Grant, and he went into independent very early on, and managed his own career. And he had mm -hmm. very few misfires, but he was really people's people talked about him as being a little eerie to work with in some ways, because huh. he was so careful in guarding the stardom of Cary Grant that it was a little hard to ever know any any person, <laughs> you know, behind it. Obviously, he had close friends, but there for a lot of people who didn't know him that well, it was like, wow, he's just he's just working on the Cary Grant project all the time. But he could choose his own parts well. Because he, like. he went independent. And and yes, how many others are any good at I do that? I, yeah. I, I think we look at the erratic <laughs> careers of a lot of people who either are big stars for a very short time. I mean, how many long-term stars do we have? There's usually not that many. No. Um, because to do that, you've got to be able to manage, you know, for decades... All over, over all these changing times, changing trends in films and TV and all the rest of it, you've got to be picking wisely, and you see more you see more flameouts than you see anything else. I think. Yeah, that's true. Well, mm. I think historically, uh, until now, second or third generation Hollywood aristocracy, as they referred to, uh, frequently uh, it's actors who did become and actresses who did become stars. They mm -hmm. would come from like fairly modest backgrounds. Movies were not a very respectable business mm -hmm. overall. So right, and they frequently kind of were self-made men and women. So, and it's interesting, they were propelled into this insane stardom and wealth, but some of them still had good politics and they also were kind of this sure, like stars and gods, but of the people. I think it's just an interesting thing, which might be like overlooked or now might be not necessarily true anymore. Like it used to be. I mean, I, you know, that's one of the cliches of stardom mm -hmm. that they'd issue you a name and elevate your background. <laughs> they try to claim you came from a some sort of well-off or stellar family or your father was an admiral or something. They'd make up outrageous biographies for a lot of stars because um, in many cases they, they, they came from nowhere. They were, <laughs> yeah, that was well, one that's of the things what I find interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's true. There were an awful lot of working class stars. I mean, I have a whole argument that's separate about how it really was. It seems like a worker cinema once, even though mm -hmm. you know, we, rev we revile it as always a kind of, you know, brutal capitalist um, system. Um, It was a lot of working class people um, in the early decades of cinema who'd found their way into, as you say, a disreputable trade that people who came from money and wealth and privilege didn't want any part of. So the early decades are kind of heartening because you've got a lot of people. I mean, I don't know, just this is a random example. Buster Keaton, he had a fourth grade education. I mean, <laughs> uh, he, you know, his family had been in vaudeville, you know, struggling along in vaudeville all of his life. And, you know, so it's it was this kind of thing of people just coming from and you get these wild backgrounds in the old days um mm -hmm. you know burt lancaster was a totally working class guy who got himself trained as a circus acrobat cary grant literally ran away in, from an impoverished cockney household and joined the circus literally is a trained acrobat yeah what barbara stanwick was she barbara orphan? Stanwyck, she was an orphan she and her younger brother were orphaned very young because their family was so impoverished they literally farmed gave the kids away to orphanages and and she was like working a working chorus girl at some ungodly young age 14 15 it was brutal brutal um so you'd get these background you know jimmy cagney comes from po absolute poverty bob hope comes from absolute poverty um and was a an a, you know a, a very low level boxer for a while and just doing anything to try to make ends meet. So you got these really super colorful 
um, stories that you don't, I don't know if they suppress them, if we still have as many people who come from really hard scrabble walks of life, you don't tend to hear at least the, the really colorful stories like that anymore. You know, Rita Hayworth was a, really a, was a, a flamenco dancer um, who was molested by her flamenco dancer father, if you want to get into the the deets god well now it's very respectable and it seems middle class to me but i don't know if it really is middle you know that a lot of people are just regular you know that they don't seem to come from outright hardship i'm trying to think of examples right now no even in the country now it's you can it can be an heir or second generation hollywood it's it's I think it's became a respectable profession and it's yeah. been a while like that, right? And yeah, and you're right. There's tremendous levels of, you know, Gwyneth Paltroism, you know, nepotism. You're the you're the daughter of a fa- your your godfather is Steven Spielberg and all the rest of it. You're already yeah. built in. Yeah, but then I don't know. It's it's all very kind of actually paradoxical. So now when it's definitely more respectable much more respectable business than it was like hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Um at the same time the stardom is not the same. Those the kind of people who came from nothing were made into those divas. But now I don't even know. As obviously I named, I can name a few people, but I don't know other divas. They're like there are no boundaries anymore. Partially, what you were talking about, part of being this star is that your image is carefully curated, uh-huh. and and it sort of stands in might be in contradiction or your private life, where everything outside of your star film image is carefully kind of hidden mm-hmm. and now nothing is hidden everyone is doing some kind of instagram live but it's still obviously it's curated but i don't know there's no mystery anymore in a way so are they even yeah i think that seems anymore yeah you know? exactly it seems to me it seems like not we're, t- we're really talking last gasps of an old of an old time star system that is really because I, I when i was teaching a class in stardom and cinema i would ask the students who they like you know and they and they just they weren't into it i was even surprised they were in the class because i was amazed at how little they were into like major star careers because for them it's like i don't know i like this stand-up comic who i've got all i watch him on, on youtube uh mm-hmm. you know they're not they weren't that into the the lie their lives behind the scenes uh, you know mainly because everything seems exposed their their stand up comedy yeah. routine is about their lives you know there seems to be very little hidden so that right away kills the tension between star image and what's what's behind it that that fueled the the big star craze of many decades associated with film yeah and now also on another note it's not only there's no separation but it's also back in the day truly a few people were famous and it was cool and i guess desirable to be famous mm-hmm. and now everyone <laughs> i am exaggerating but like everyone is famous and it's sort of like the whole thing in obsolete so this is bizarre the whole idea just of stardom because there are a lot of famous people and the whole phenomenals of uh, youtube as you say or instagram stars usually young kids who have a huge following they're famous for their private lives or for whatever they're doing they're not even cultivating the salian image they're not in films they're not part of they're not acting they're i don't know they're not even part of any kind of story they're just literally projecting their life in one way or another on screen and they may have some i guess performing talents i'm not following that but i assume they have some kind of charisma mm-hmm. otherwise why would they have so many followers but it's it's just now completely even outside of any kind of creation of anything yeah i mean i it, it's an interesting thing that at the, at the same time that there was a, so much coverage suddenly on the idea of the spread of celebrity culture and now everybody's obsessed with stardom i don't know that's when when there was 
I don't know, 90s, 2000s, a lot of fretting about how everything was about celebrity, everything was about stardom, and you were getting more and more and more stars. But even that seems to pass. I don't you, I don't feel like you've, I don't know, maybe I'm lying. Maybe if I was young, it would be different. <laughs> I'd be thinking, I'm going to become famous if it kills me. And But that whole kind of <laughs> kind of story even so- sounds on. Un- it sounds really old fashioned when I say it. That would have been something you might might have said in, you know, nineteen forty. But would would anyone say it now? And maybe that's why, because it's like, well, it, it seems too familiar and quotidian. It, wealth makes more sense. I wanna be I wanna be rich <laughs> because rich has become so sky high and separate. You know, billionaires in the one percent versus everybody else and the schism gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But the idea that there were these almost unapproachably um famous and separate and mysterious beings, um, and what what a what a, what a way to it would transform your world utterly if you could somehow get way up there in that world. I don't know that people feel that way. And certainly when I was in Hollywood, that was the biggest, you know, which is you know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s. That was the biggest disappointment. You finally got behind the curtain. You finally got to the house in the hills of a famous person. And you're like, really? <laughs> this is this is it, huh? Really boring. <laughs> really middle class. Unimaginative. All the money in the world and no idea what to do with it. I mean, it was it was. It was devastating. I really thought that was going to be where it was, and it wasn't. But when you say when, it, what, what did you expect? Some kind of like crazy parties? I mean, what well, what should be there if yes, it's a top of the Olympus? You've exactly hit it. I'm like, if it's anything less than an orgy, <laughs> I'm disappointed. <laughs> and I just thought the houses would, cause, you know, you know, it's like kind of Sunset Boulevard syndrome. The houses yeah. of an impossible size, so ridiculously lavish. Something that was at such an impressive scale and clothes. Mm-hmm. Every I wanted everything to be way more, and to and that would include toward a kind of excess eccentricity of total freedom like where would you go if you could do anything without boundary you could do whatever you wanted you could afford anything you wanted everything is permitted and to see the kind of housefrau outfits and and it was just unbelievably boring and everyday and the most uninspiring sights i ever saw i think maybe i was just at the wrong parties i for a while, I clung to that idea. Maybe if you could get to the <laughs> other party higher up the hill, it would be really an extraordinary sight of <laughs> what can you do with freedom, total freedom, if you have it. It's funny. I guess you were a bit too late to the party because I guess 70s were crazy and then it really turned into middle class suburban I've heard that. people making I, it in Hollywood. In fact, when I when I first got my first little teeny job at the Francis Coppola Company in the late 80s, that's what people told me. You're literally here mm-hmm. a couple a of years too late. Too late. Everyone. <laughs> Everyone was partying. We've, we're, we've all just been to rehab, I was told. <laughs> Everyone cleaned up. That's what right I thought. And, and you're like, there. oh. Shit. <laughs> and you're like, I haven't even started. Exactly. And you already cleaned up. And you've all cleaned up and it's all over. And they were all very bu- And everything was very businesslike. You know, Francis Coppola was now into just making money. He was just going to be a director for hire. Everything <laughs> shrank right before I got there. God, it's funny. Yeah. Well... Yeah, well, it is what it is. It is truly kind of... It seems really boring. It seems boring. boring. The movies are boring. People behind the movies are boring. Are there any stars that are new stars that you're like, wow, I would would go see that person in anything. That person really means something to me. Seems like I don't even know. People are more into the music business. They're they're just other businesses that people are more into if they want to get 
worshipful and see every every concert that then you'll get some response but if it's like would you see any movie by this person just to see them and it's hard to imagine people saying yeah you might not know what like the youngest generation is doing well i'm just trying to think of who are fairly young or fairly young stars he's not the newest but like chris pratt would anyone have ever said i will just go anywhere to see chris i can't even finish the sentence i mean i just he just isn't that kind of stardom Anymore. Yeah, I don't know. I can barely recognize his face. Yeah, I don't know. I barely know who it is. Like, I sort of, I guess, know who you're talking about. I don't know. That, yeah, that's that's the point. But before we move to the interview you did with Dolores, I wonder, so the distinction that I kind of still wanted to, to maintain is that the movie star right, versus great actors and actresses, I think, I don't know, does it even exist anymore? Exactly like there are no movie stars. Are there great actors? Well, I think that... People are at least again. I'm just going from teaching. I mean, I, I don't think I'm a good judge, but you know, because I also taught a class in performance and film, and people were really into the idea of they could they could get all reverent about somewhat people they felt gave a good performance, mm-hmm. which I find hideously boring to be constantly going. But that that person is a really excellent actor. I mean, just like all right, <laughs> but then you get a lot of that, and you know, you the Kate Blanchett. Well, she's just an excellent actor. Um, sure, fine, that, and that's great, and you know, that's great when people are great. Though the people who are considered great, I'm not. I don't usually find as exciting. <laughs> Okay, I guess I always considered Jeremy Irons to be a great actor. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, for him, I would be more interested in as an outsized persona. He seemed to have a huge kind of star persona in his day of, of, well, he had that ironic decadent thing that is pretty old world. That's like Marlena Dietrich territory, you know, of the old, old days where you come out of Germany or something and you've seen it all and you've done it all. Um, and you're perpetually bored by everything that's less that than is decadent. not perverse. Yeah, that's not perverse. <laughs> not perverse. I, I, so I yeah. never really thought of him in terms of great actor or not great actor as more like he's got a big he's got a big persona, a big act that he does. Huh. I see. So it's almost like okay, you think it's not performing? I don't, I don't know it's actually a, he's just the per, yeah. I don't know that I'm a great judge. I mean, the people I tend to love when they give a performance, I'm. I, other people would probably say they're over the top or something. Or I, I tend to like, like some more stylized things. Well, it's mm-hmm. the reason I love Coen Brothers films. That there's a lot of stylized mm-hmm. performances that I love, and that. But other people would, I guess, they get they get recognized. But it would just be, mm-hmm. you know, it's big. It's it's often a kind of eccentric and over the top. And uh, I don't know. I'm even blanking. Who do I who do I tend mm. to like as a performer? I'm even blanking out on that. But more, we tend to like method acting more. Um, someone who can do really intense drama um Mm -hmm. matthew mcconaughey is considered you know really great Uh, (laughs) wow um yeah i don't i don't even know what to say i don't either he's a funny he's a funny specimen yeah he is he is so i'm always i always feel a little like the whole meryl streep cult obviously oh yeah Yeah. you've got a lot of shit for that right because you were writing that review never got more shit on anything she's untouchable it's interesting i never realized before you're writing that kind of negative review that you can't touch her you can't. I think the, the only thing you could do, I'm told, that would be more dangerous would be to do the, a similar piece on Oprah Winfrey. You're just not allowed Oof. to touch certain. <laughs> they're kind of just holy creatures in a broad sw- swatch of the mindset of America. And I, I don't quite know why, but you got to be careful. <laughs> yeah, but she's considered the ultimate. She is the standard that's always mentioned. 
as great performance is and everyone should revere her for those reasons oh before i forget we we kind of both have immense respect for adam's family in angelica houston <laughs> and uh, what's yes. the name i was wednesday adams wednesday adams christina ricci and yes yeah angelica houston is a movie star not she, traditional but yeah yeah well she's kind of disappeared in recent years but yeah. but yes she definitely was for a while and i and i really liked her for her eccentric look um you know she had an, a kind she could do extreme she could make extreme uses of her voice she was obviously ideal casting as morticia it was great that she could go from really kind of serious drama um um like what did she do the the adaptation of james joyce's the dead um so mm-hmm. she could do the high drama where everyone would be all reverent and then she'd turn right around and do adam's family and and seem to throw <laughs> herself in every bit as much yeah so yeah i i think yeah i really i really liked her i really liked there was a there was briefly in the what year was that anyway? In the nineties again? There was a, a little strain of of kind of interestingly dark female stardom and it Christina Ricci was one of them. She was the baby version and Winona, Winona Ryder was kind of in the middle. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of dark irony that kind of floated through the culture briefly and 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 was very appealing for a while. Well, Aubrey Plaza has kind of took that She's spot. She's very much that spot. Right? That's very right. That's that. There's almost like only one spot in every generation <laughs> for that. It's not like uber popular. Exactly. Right? You won't have kind lots of, like of those. Niche. No. You can, <laughs> you can only have one. One dark girl. <laughs> one dark girl. That's exactly right. If you watch like a movie like Mermaid, that old movie Mermaids, and you see Cher, and then her daughters uh-huh. are the teenage Winona Ryder, and the and the child Christina Ricci, you're just looking at like one, two, three. There, there's the generations. That's it. <laughs> and that's all there's going to be at that time. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We got the types, and we f- we fulfilled them. You know, generation after generation. That is funny. That's true. <laughs> well, so uh, hard to know how to wrap see. it up, stardom. How to wrap it up? Well, I. I guess we just wanted to we discussed the embarrassing parts. Mm-hmm. Well, you you didn't embarrass yourself too much. You only briefly. Well, just I've just got a macho man fixation only yeah, in, in Craig. the fantasy of cinema, and then it goes back to Robert Mitchum and Lee Marvin and uh-huh. those guys. But back to Daniel Craig, what movie impressed you with him? Like you mean the James Bond? franchise the kind, the kind, well that's pretty much all he does other than okay. he does yeah. he does these small and usually i'm totally indifferent to the james bond franchise uh-huh. a little bit connery but then eh, i don't care about mm-hmm. it but you know it's just him it's not it's not really the franchise and okay I, and of course i thought he was gonna have a huge career based on that but he really and, does no. a lot of indies otherwise and yeah um you know, he comes up well. He comes up with Road to Perdition. He's a kind of mm-hmm. second lead. He's he's he just has a tremendous sense of kind of working class danger and 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 rage, kind of banked rage that he does very very well. And that's that's what I like. And you can also do a kind of you know uh, what sarcastic humor about things. Like my favorite of the James of the Bonds is where he's now middle aged Bonds and he Bond and he can only do a couple of pull ups. You know, he's been they they give the reason is that he's been injured horribly injured and just escaped death but it's really because he's you know he's getting to be a really middle-aged guy and so it, <laughs> it just it does wonders with the whole james bond thing that suddenly you know he can't do the sit-ups he can't do the he can't run yeah. <laughs> you know? and you know the reactions of like wait a minute i'm not the proudest beast in the jungle anymore what happened is <laughs> all very funny and wonderful yeah 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 and he just looks like he's cut from the living rock you know he just looks like he's he's hewn out of granite and, yeah. and that is not the typical star look for men anymore. It's a real throwback. 
Now hmm. we, we we moved into a very pretty boy age where you know huh. soft and you're looking like a teenage forever teenager forever <laughs> kind of like Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt. They just stayed look <laughs> excuse Johnny, me Johnny Depp. <laughs> well, they they don't so much now, but for decades into well into their forties. I know. Yeah, it's very youthful. Yeah, look. they stayed super young looking. Yeah, true. God, I uh, but it's, that's again more like great great acting, I guess, than movie star. But uh, Jeremy Irons and Dead Ringers. Mm-hmm. This is like. Uh, I, to me, it's almost, you can't be much better than that. Yeah, but he does, it's so showy. It's like where he takes the irony and he takes it to some <laughs> limit that's stratospheric, <laughs> where he's all, he and the, the two twins in the end, and they're just languishing yeah. around in their robes. But it's also a one-man uh, one movie. It's no, kind of right. impressive how he can hold the entire film alone. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. There's something uh, impressive about that. Well, yeah, of course. And he really was a kind of weirdly riveting figure. I remember him in, I forget, it was, it's, with, it's based on a true story, Klaus von Bülow and whether or not he killed his wife. It's him and Glenn Close. I forget the name. Okay. Anyway, he just languids his way through that that film with you never (laughs) doubting for a second that he killed his wife, but they're making it like a a real, like, did he do it? And you're like, yes, yes, he did it. I think I know. That's actually some kind of Oscar nominated I, film. I think God, it probably what is. It called? I just am forgetting. I can't remember. It. But yeah, he was really good in that, and he's even treated by the young legal team that's trying to save him as he's like some kind of Bar- Boris Karloff type monster from another <laughs> realm because he's so decadent. It's just gone right off the charts, and I always just associate him with an almost, you know right on the borderline of outright comedy with how far <laughs> he's he, he's willing to take. But not that. quite. <laughs> But yeah, not, he is, but not quite. But not I think quite. if if he wasn't as like good looking, it would be comedy. Uh-huh. But since he is, it's sort of like dramatic. Remains dramatic, even Dead Ringers. There's something about that he he can pull off the serious mm-hmm. sort of perversion without it being fully farce. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, that's, that's probably right. I He's can... helped by the cadaverous, you know, you know, the cheekbones and the cadaverous hollows mm-hmm. underneath totally. the cheekbones. He's got a great long face. <laughs> if he did get fat, that's that it. would not work. That would be it. That would be it. That's true. It's funny. So, uh, okay, I think we like we're ranting yeah. for a while let's, should we move yeah let's yeah. bring Dolores on let me quickly introduce her um, Dolores McElroy um, she is currently finishing up her dissertation um, it is entitled Passionate Failure the Diva on Screen and in it she traces the figure of the diva from grand from the grand opera tra- tradition into the Hollywood studio era and she also um, was with me teaching a film called um, Stardom and Cinema at UC Berkeley and in, in the film department and that's where she's getting her dissertation and we're gonna now babble about stardom what define a star and give the history of stardom and who knows what else we might reveal that's shocking and embarrassing all right and um and we'll uh come back in two weeks okay see you then okay see you then bye Dolores, we're so glad that you are here to talk with us about stardom because, of course, you and I have talked about it incessantly already. So now we get to share it um, with our beloved followers. This is um, a wonderful opportunity. Um, So, 
Yes. Honored and delighted. Aww, that's so, <laughs> so I wanted to start at, at one of the stickier points of stardom, um, which is a kind of uh, what I consider star shame, where you actually <laughs> um, are somewhat besotted by a star and you would hesitate to admit it to anyone just because I think it gets into what are the feelings th- that are evoked by stardom in general mm-hmm. and, and that people seem to have trouble talking talking about or even realizing. Um, so, you know, in this trial by fire, we have to volunteer each of us at least one star <laughs> <laughs> that we are somewhat ashamed of mentioning. Uh, this is going to be more likely me to be able to do than you. Um, yeah. I think you're pretty open, but I, I, no will start, <laughs> I will start with mine. I might be the only confessor on the show. Detail, detail. <laughs> My star shame is that I have a, this crush on, on Daniel Craig <laughs> and, and it's, it's embarrassing. And the whole thing, I, the whole thing reason I think there's so much shame around it is you're confessing some sort of, you know, um, um, erotic, erotic attachment. Er, erotic attachment. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> and one that you don't think would match up with, you know, who you generally present to the public. So mm-hmm. my my star crush, and it's, you know, the end of a long line of crushes on older macho male stars. And the two <laughs> that always come to mind for me are Robert Mitchum and Lee Marvin. And I have a huge thing for both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always found it fascinating that, you know, you know, they're these, they're always these brawling, tough talking, you know, uh, <laughs> um, ex- if, as physical specimens that just kind of announces itself in an almost absurd way, the level of toughness, etc. Uh-huh. <laughs> but also and, like protectors, you know, they take care of the, uh, the protagonist, I feel, or, oh, yes. they, you know, <laughs> or of anyone, is. yeah, whoever the woman and, and whoever is perceived to be, to be weaker, but it's almost always, yes, the woman protagonist. <laughs> So it just seems so embarrassingly regressive in every way that I'm just like, oh, and to me, it's also fascinating that it's I've never pursued this in life or even had the impulse. So every if you lined up every guy I ever dated or was interested in, not one would be anywhere in that ballpark. It's almost always like, you know, sarcastic, somewhat. So what you did, I don't know, law guys and intellectual types. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just like, what? <laughs> so why I never even had any impulse to go for this in life. And yet it's this huge fantasy. Uh, right, right. But, you know, fantasy is important. You know, dreams, they, they make up as much of our subconscious or, or lives as what happens on the surface. So I think that's, I, I'm so glad you came out about Daniel Craig. I think it's... <laughs> It's an important intervention. <laughs> I, do, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I love when, when you'll often, when you'll talk to people about it, they'll try, quickly try to justify it in terms of acting talent, et cetera. Oh, yes. Or good works. You know, or she does work. great things for the exactly. UN or whatever. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not, you know, I don't even, I can't even suggest that there's anything of that nature. Is he a good actor or not? Do I care? Who cares? I do not care. <laughs> I do not care. That's so beautiful. So beautiful yeah. to hear you admit that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I feel we just got to lay it out there. So, all right. Now yep. you, is there yep. anyone you're even remotely ashamed of that you don't talk about all the time? No, I mean, I've turned my <laughs> shame inside out into a career. So I'm over that. Uh, oh, but my I, God. <laughs> I tend to like, you know, I mean, I've got a kind of, there are different strands of stars. The respectable ones are like, I, you know, I love Catherine Deneuve. That's someone who's films I would see, you know, any film, anything she's in. But that's like so respectable in art house 
house and you know whatever mm. such good taste like how boring um here these are the things <laughs> that tend to be embarrassing i love i mean love in a religious way liza minnelli Barbara Streisand, you know, these are the things that tend to be more sort of like shame producing. Um, And yeah, I have no shame about them because I spent sort of a lifetime thinking about why they're valid because the culture will do that work of shaming you. Absolutely. Yeah, that's done. I don't need to internalize that. So we turned that frown upside down and we made it a a dissertation. But um, well, and if you if you if you're not online with Dolores and, you know, you're missing out, Dolores will just throw it all up on the feed. You know, know, anything Liza, Barbara, Catherine Deneuve is just a constant onslaught of her love. And there's so when I talking about shame, I had a feeling you were not going to be part of it. But just but just, you know. Just in in a, in a general level, what's the shame that attach? You're right. I don't think there's any shame that attaches to Deneuve. She's so high culture. But yeah. what about what about Barbara Streisand and Liza Minnelli? Oh God, I mean, so many things. They're too, you know, they're really over the top in terms of emotional expression. They tend to sing um, music from like a hundred eighty years ago, you know. <laughs> um, so so they're sort of like oove is like very outdated. They come from a very song and dance vaudeville Broadway tradition. That's you know, mm-hmm. it's laughable. It's um, we, we, in a, in an era that sort of like thinks it's invested in realism. I mean, it isn't, but it thinks of itself that way. They they don't seem to have a place, it, you know, that the criticism you get is like, oh, that's so unrealistic or, mm-hmm. you know, what, which is the dumbest, most reductive criticism ever. But that's kind of the thing. What it is, is that people are uncomfortable, I think, with that level of like externalized <laughs> expression. It's like it's all on the table. Um, so, yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. Um, you know, they're women and mm-hmm. they're not conventionally attractive. They're not really selling. Se- well, they are selling sex in some in, a, in an interesting way. Um, but yeah, there are all kinds of embarrassing things. Yeah, about the access. Them. They seem mm-hmm. to be the most excessive performers that we that are living right. right exactly. Like, I, I can't think of anyone bigger. Um, no. <laughs> in performance style to the point that people have to sta- stagger back a few steps when when they now make any kind of appearance, which neither one very does very much. It's you true. Know? Anymore. That's very true. Yeah, no, no. And I think, I mean, there's so much, I, I don't know how we, how much we want to go into the, their individual images, but, you know, you would think like Streisand got defanged because she's been recording like sort of shit middle of the road music for like decades now. Mm-hmm. But the, the sort of, for me, the marker is the reason I know she's more relevant than her musical choices and then her, you know, her like sort of embarrassing centrist Hollywood liberal politics mm-hmm. are that like straight men still really hate Barbara Streisand. <laughs> I mean, there's like no performer that makes a straight man more uncomfortable. And that's why I'm like, you know what, Babs? You still got it. There's still something about you that's really just like rankling the mainstream. And therefore, you know, I I mean, that's not the only reason I honor her, but it's certainly a source of pleasure. So, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and, you know, and they're both, you know, of course, identified so strongly with gay lesbian culture. Oh, for sure. That, for sure. That, that just seems like 
that's a slight extension of what you just said. <laughs> yes, yes, most definitely. Most definitely. And, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the thing I hear mostly, um, and this is like sort of anecdotal, but also uh, just like reading pieces online, especially mm. about Streisand, uh, the thing that comes up is her self-regard. She mm. has so much self-regard and that pisses people off. <laughs> and I'm like, can you imagine saying that about a man? He has too much self-regard. <laughs> it would never happen. It would never happen. But anyway, I love, you know, she well, does address her public like a queen, you know, and it's over the top and I love it. So, yeah, yeah. She yeah. absolutely has the queenly thing going on, like to rival Elizabeth Taylor's late life, you exactly. know, <laughs> Queen Elizabeth, <laughs> the alternate <laughs> manner. Right, that, right. They both have the same kind of little Maltese white dog that they always. Oh my God, you're with. right. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> Barbara's are cloned, of course. At least one of them is. Oh, that's right. She has a cloned one. Oh my God. I'm, I'm cringing as we speak because that's, that's so best. much. That is so much. <laughs> it's so wrong. It's oh such a God. misappropriation of resources. But anyway. Yeah. 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 So wrong is good. But, you know, and that's a good segue to talk about how. It's perceived as a problem that she has too much self-regard because who would ever say that about a real star? Right? That's just exactly. part and parcel of what yes. our, our true star exudes is a tremendous. Oh God, yes. <laughs> sense of oh my God. So yeah. So let's talk a little bit. Of, you know, we should about um, you know how how one defines a star. What is a star? Yeah. Well, I think I mean a couple. I know you've probably got the academic definitions going, uh -huh. but you know one of them is that I think it. It relates to this idea of self-regard is that, you know, a star is someone who's sort of like famous and has some authority, but no actual institutional power. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of where the irony comes in. And, you know, when stars do address their public, like they're some mm -hmm. kind of monarch, because, of course, they're they're not and they don't have any real power to rule. I mean, that's gotten a little confused these days. Let's not even think about that. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, since Reagan and Schwarzenegger and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, right. But, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think that's a source of the irony you know yeah um, and sort of the shame. Um, and I think the shame is that we would invest so sincerely in something that seems to be frivolous and to right. have, you know, to have no concrete materialist utilitarian um, sort of like force in our lives. Um, yeah. Right. I think that def yeah, definitely the idea is it's juvenile. Um, it's yeah, that's the shame. It's juvenile. It's embarrassing. It's such a shallow thing to have any investment in because as you say, what what is their power? What is their realm? <laughs> right. You're subconscious. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. I mean, if we want to get into Richard Dyer, who's uh, kind of the grand old man of star studies, he he did the founding major works, um, which are star two books, stars uh, is one and heavenly bodies is another. And that's back in the 70s. It took decades before there were any there was any th such thing as star studies, partly for the reasons we're talking about um, mm -hmm. scholars, I think seems pretty clear, were anxious, nervous about approaching so seemingly frivolous a topic as this, especially yes. as it involves you in fan worship and everything. Now we have fan studies, but that would have been unheard of back in, you know, back in the high theory days. So Richard Dyer wades in bravely and, he, and he's just doing some pretty some pretty you know basic and important things talking about well what is a star and he he talks about how the, the star is this complex um what text that's made up of many many other so-called star texts that are pulled out of a huge range of 
areas, mostly media. So a star mm-hmm. is made up of all the roles that they play, all the interviews they ever give, all the gossip about them, everything written about them. Every you know, it's almost any kind of uh, you know media available trace of star interest, star discussion, star appearance, star anything. Mm -hmm. And this includes, you know, the vicissitudes of life, things that happen to the stars that whether they create scandal or whether it's as simple as they're manifestly aging in some way, all of that accrues to this kind of star image that necessarily has to do some morphing and changing because it's growing. It's, it's growing additional layers of meaning as it goes. Um, So just, just, he just does something that's super useful in thinking about stars because otherwise you'll tend to think, oh, a star is their film appearances or something really narrow, and that's not the case. Right, yeah, there's a there's a silent film historian named Richard de Cordova who writes mm-hmm. about, I, I forgot if you teach this, Eileen, uh, do you, uh, picture personalities, did you ever teach that? Yes, we definitely yes. do. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right, so, um, you know, I think he, he sort of usefully puts it at the, the moment stardom, as we think of it happened is when we started to know something about the stars uh, quote real lives. So exactly what you say. It's that, you know, a picture personality was someone whose name you might've known, but you would have known nothing about where they're from. uh, The fact that they had a life off the screen, they were only known by their films. And Mm -hmm. uh, many of them performed under pseudonyms because it was still like pretty unrespectable to be in, in pictures. Um, But then, you know, circa 1914 um, kind of, you know, a bunch of things, came together, including the advent of the close-up or wide use of the close-up. Um, and then sort of the movie magazine started to peddle stories about the stars, you know, real lives behind the screen. And this is the dynamic, the on-screen, off-screen dynamic that gives us sort of contemporary stardom or maybe even uh, a golden age stardom because maybe contemporary stardom is quite different. But <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll have to tackle that later. But yes, <laughs> D. D- Cordova is exactly the case. He's parsed it so finely in right. the discourse of of the day studying all all the kind of you know newspaper and fan magazine references everything about the about the way people talked about performers on screen which is it's a really shocking thing because you'd what you'd assume if you went back to pioneering cinema that while they're taking so many other things from from the stage they just take the star system which already existed right in theater <laughs> and they didn't it took yeah. years and years of like for example um some of the early language used around performers in film were that they were posing for the pictures or posing for film so they yes. took the language of photography really early on instead because it didn't seem to people at the time it seems that acting on the stage was anything like what you were doing in film right. so you go from posing to people beginning to realize oh there is this performance going on there's this there's this kind of labor on the part of the people that is like something what you do on stage and mm-hmm. then as you say you start to get i think the the headline from a from a, an early newspaper or something is a big um um a big uh what uh spread on is your is your is your real star r-e-e-l a real star r-e-a-l in other words what's who who are they behind the scenes yes Um, are they are they're playing someone who's the virtuous hero or whatever but are they anything like that behind the scenes and that split is for dyer as well where you start getting that's where stardom is Mm -hmm. where you actually care (laughs) <laughs> right. Who is that person behind, <laughs> behind the image? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that tension is what gives you, you know, one of your your base level 
often almost always erotic fascination um with the mm-hmm. figure of the star yeah so and he parses it by years it's like 1909 to 1911 is when we have or whatever <laughs> i'm making that up it's something like that the picture personality emerges and 1914 is when you have stars now yeah. you have fully running star system that kind of thing yeah so yeah so it's a really interesting and bizarrely lengthy process before you will write wind up with film stars and for a long time film stars I don't know how it is now we'll have to get into that set mm-hmm. the standard for stardom if you were a film star you were the biggest star so yes. a theater star any when TV comes along a TV star other kinds of stars could not match a film star for sheer for wattage <laughs> wattage exactly <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> which I think has to do with you know uh, movies being mass culture at the time mm. in a way that they are not now you know people going mm-hmm. to the movie like you know the average person went to the movies like 2.7 times a week or something much more than we do now um, mm-hmm. everyone went the whole family went and I think you know yes television fills that gap but um, at, you know maybe marry that with uh, the frequency of visiting a mass cultural product with sort of the size <laughs> and mm-hmm. also the nature of the publicity you know tv has to fit in your home it has to be dialed down it's it's domesticated you can't have someone that big in your living room it's unnerving <laughs> and that's so. exactly if you ever read you know compare contrast between film and tv star that is and for a long time film stars would not do tv for that very reason they didn't mm-hmm. want the shrinkage <laughs> they didn't want to be re- down and they didn't want to be associated with, with what was clearly regarded as the lesser, le- less exciting, less important medium. They realized it was a kind of demotion, and it's it was always regarded that way for a very long time. Yes, that you were a lesser star, and that's what you had to be: homey, domesticated. That's what would work. Yes, and if someone failed in television or something, they'd say, "Oh, they can't shrink down." <laughs> you yes. know, Frank Frank Sinatra had a year long television show that by all all reports was a total bust and mm-hmm. that was one of the things he's just not he's yeah. a concert and film guy and he can't he's it's just weird he's it's weird to have him in your home you don't you definitely don't want frank sinatra in your home i think we right. all can all agree on that <laughs> well i do but that's different. i think yes i think you do but too in, in every way he's just he's just not i no. he's not a homey presence or, um, or same with judy garland right and her yes that was the yes, feedback she, she yeah it was just too much like she, you can't listen to an hour of you know judy at her early 60s most intense and sort of odd you know it like people middle america couldn't take it they rated her on a scale of like you know what it, there's like a famous anecdote if lassie's a 10 like the most comfortable <laughs> they rated judy garland at like a five or a six uh-huh. <laughs> and, yeah. the, and the sort of like head of CBS said this to her in some meeting and she's like I think she said I'm not lassie if you want the girl <laughs> next door go next door <laughs> <laughs> but there she's quoting she's quoting Joan Crawford Joan, Crawford, that's one of Joan yeah. Crawford's great line which I, I always use and that's why I know it I love that that's great. Um, yeah Judy Garland I guess we know we've talked often I, I can't watch those TV shows except in tiny tiny YouTube snippets and even <laughs> and they hurt me. They hurt me so bad because she's doing. doing I'm doing it for her. Yeah, she's just giving these raw performances that are just. It's just. It's painful. The tension is just painful, and then, then it's in this TV box of the time in this little black and white picture. That wow, yes. it's too much. Yeah, yeah. It's almost absurd. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you know. <laughs> 
And there's almost too much. But by the time she does this, especially by the time she's doing TV, early 60s, there's so (laughs) much meaning and cultural weight attached to Judy Garland that it's again, it's too much. And that's another thing that Richard Dyer gets into. Like, what's the significance of the given star? What all all those texts come together and they bear this freight of meaning that, again, if you last as a star, just increases and increases. So. It can be really complex what a, what a star means to the culture that produces it, or even if you transcend to the world that winds up embracing it. Right. Um, and, and that's where you get into some very, of course, we love this kind of thing, but we, we were trying to teach a class, stardom and cinema, and quickly found that a lot of students were just like, what? I mean, they just had the hardest time getting into analyzing a star image, tracing a star from their... You know, their first performances to where it coalesces into stardom and what all the factors are and what all the background and the different roles have contributed. And they just Mm -hmm. be like, what were some of our great ones? We had we had people who who talked about the the warm fatherly persona of Robert De Niro as a star because they never like meet the parents and shit and never went <laughs> they knew nothing about taxi driver and king of comedy or anything else and we we're just like clutching our heads going will you fucking google it what the <laughs> hell? classic a classic i forgot oh yeah oh we had so many of those that were that people had watched their movies in the past five years and had no idea of what had gone before right so you, it's something you really can get into if you're into stardom and you know we are um, yeah so yeah, let's maybe, yeah, I'll go ahead. Well, also telling types, I, I realize this from teaching also a class on stardom and being mm-hmm. a reader for you. Um, they don't, they can't like sort of articulate or if it's in the past, identify a cultural type, sort of a mm-hmm. femme fatale from a, you know, a secretary. <laughs> like they can't tell the difference. Right. Um, yeah. But um, oh, I, I lost my point. I had a I had a decent one. Oh, what I always remember from Dyer is, you know, I think the sort of key is that he he says a, a good, an interesting star, a star that'll kind of have some traction, uh, reconciles conflicting ideologies. That's right? right. Yeah. So you know, an example is Marilyn Monroe. The sort of expectation of that a woman be you know sexy, but also uh, innocent and yielding. You know, it's Madonna whore all in one, mm-hmm. but sort of to the max and. And the reason they reconcile this sort of temporarily uneasily is uh, in the most literal way, simply because they're in one body yeah, <laughs> or exactly. one person, you know, <laughs> um, which really works for me. And I think like, as you say, as the sort of time goes on and a star sticks around, especially with someone like Garland, you get even more and more contradictions like rolled mm-hmm. into that and they become sort of historical sort of then and now. And yeah, so um well, and anyway, to go that- on with with Marilyn Monroe, that's a that's the perfect example. You know, he also says, think about the 1950s, and it seems like she brings together just atomic level sexuality, but of that very 50s type um, mm-hmm. that includes the you know easily tamed, submissive, baby like, um, innocent woman. And again, if you put them in one explosive pack, usually they were separated. So it would be I don't know, Judy yes. Garland. I mean, not Judy Garland. What I'm saying, Debbie Reynolds would be. The, the easily the, the the tame girl she was very much a girl next door type and elizabeth taylor is the femme fatale figure and you keep them separate if you bring them together you bring together like the the terrible gender hostile um um gender politics of the 50s in this <laughs> marilyn monroe package and you can see how the more her mental health 
woes, the more her addictions grow, the more obviously troubled she becomes and the more she strives to be a great actress, the more she just tips her star image all over the place. It becomes impossible to hang on um, to that, mm-hmm. the, that initial image. So it starts getting more and more difficult to kind of manage not only is her life more and more difficult to manage for her but her stardom becomes more and more and the the studios are constantly trying to put her back into the initial Marilyn Monroe package but at the same time Billy Wilder becomes a master of this and so she so she yes she'll be baby like but incredibly almost unconsciously sexy um in some like it hot but she'll also be a troubled alcoholic and that's a kind of sub note that gets added so then the studio's happy. Marilyn Monroe is not happy because she wants to play serious, serious roles. She wants to star in a version of the Brothers Karamazov. Um, so she's tortured, <laughs> but that's a huge hit of a film. So managing the star persona is is a fascinating thing to watch, both on the star's part, on the star's team, on the people on the part of the people who are trying to employ the star and have money invested in the star and, and this tremendous amounts of, you know, tension and difficulty involved. Yes. And as we discussed, you know, this this is one of the virtues of the studio system. I mean, you wouldn't think to say that out loud because we know all these stories of mm. stars being, you know, oppressed and like mm-hmm. their real selves being so Pressed and you know mm-hmm. all those draconian contracts uh, with morality clauses, et cetera, et cetera. But you know there were people tending to your image, and you've said this, Eileen, as many times as they as they got it wrong, they they got it right. <laughs> so and, and these days, you kind of look at people in their careers, and um, uh, you know, is are there are these sort of like careers lovingly pruned as they were back in the day? It doesn't seem like it. No, it's always so frustrating. You spot someone who's just seems like they're a natural born star. That person is going to be a huge star. And then and then the roles never materialize for them, which the studio system, I think, unless they were really blundering, their whole idea is this is an asset. Of course, it's a cruel capitalist idea, but nevertheless, it gets you a great star. Yes, um, it does. It's all about how to, studying what are their best angles? How are we going to photograph them? How are we going to dress them? What is their publicity going to center around? What character types are we going to attribute to them? And what roles are we going to give them that make them ever bigger stars? That's money in the bank. Yes. So you look at someone, you know, you and I have talked often about her, Eva Green, who when she kind of bursts on the scene within Casino Royale and does a yes. few other things, you think, God, she's got everything. She's got the amazing, mesmerizing looks. She's got this kind of witchy power. She's yes. fabulous. Yes. Um, she's going to be big. And then what's happened with Eva Green? I mean, it's not like she never gets anything. She got Penny Dreadful, you know, mm-hmm. the tele- television series that ran a long time. But it's nothing to what she could have been if there'd been a whole machine Undeniably. recognizing. Yeah. It's, yeah. So that can be really frustrating if you see someone who's got it and then nothing almost nothing seems to happen yeah sure and you you know in a in a sense you were allowed to fail in the studio system you know you might have seven sort of mediocre pictures before and they they keep you on and kind of keep trying a little bit until they got it right you know um Mm -hmm. you don't i don't know if actors really have that opportunity or or their failures tend to be you know like kind of just like haphazard and forgive me for using this but like (laughs) off-brand you know and it's like uh, you're not you should be pruning this image (laughs) with a much clearer picture (laughs) but but it's but it's true there's a kind of horror of stardom because that we're we're into or we think we're into this authenticity thing (laughs) yes (laughs) yeah, that ain't 
that ain't really how, you know, it's like the famous Cary Grant line. Everyone wants to be Cary Grant. Even I want to be Cary Grant. And Cary Grant was his own invention. His real name was Archibald Leach. So you're like, Cary, if you aren't Cary, nobody's Cary. Oh, right, you know, but it was, right. that's how confusing it it gets and is that he, and he was one of the kings of absolutely maintaining this star image with a kind of ruthless self-pruning. He was doing it independently for most of his career, but he had such a sense of how to tend to That's his, own, true. his own image that w- except for a couple of forays into trying to prove he's a serious actor. That's always a thing with, st- with so many stars. Yes. It's almost always a mistake. Um, <laughs> it almost always goes really badly unless that's already part. Like if you're Betty Davis, that's, being a serious performer is central um, right. to your to your star image. But if you're Cary Grant, nobody cares. Everyone's like, you're charming. You look great in a tux. Exactly. <laughs> you're also hilarious. You can combine this kind of riotous hilarity with incredible good looks and charm. That's what we want. We don't want to see you play. I don't know what did he, he did. Uh, none but the lonely heart. You know, a miserable, downtrodden angry cockney struggling through life and you're like carrie that was true of your life your actual life when you were a child but no one wants to see it right (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly let's not confuse acting with stardom (laughs) with stardom it it need not touch at any point no no (laughs) you can be yeah no please please Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you can be such an effective performer and not be a quote unquote good actor. That was another thing our students completely struggled. Yes. They wanted to name, you'd say, who's your favorite star? And they'd be like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of who's considered. Meryl Streep is my favorite star because oh, she's such a great actor. And it's just like, of course, this hurts me particularly. So but I'm bad. like, no, no, no. <laughs> a star, you know, a star that you only care that they're a star. And yes. they just didn't even know what that meant because there's all that virtue concern you know that's not virtuous we need something virtuous or we're or it looks bad if we like it yes so yeah it's so tiring and I mean I don't know how to I keep trying to like emphasize to students like it's not like stardom is like a non-talent it's its own talent you know yes. like it's it's photogenie it's it's being photo not only photogenic but kind of able to like um, have the camera record your your thoughts your moods mm-hmm. and these things aren't necessarily going to read on a stage or in an acting class but it's kind of like understanding a communion with the machine and only a certain people have only certain people have this and often people, these people aren't thought of as great actors. You know, it's um, it's Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton on the set of Cleopatra. And Burton realized, like, she's a better film actor. And it's because she knows how to stay still. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's all about, you just kind of think the the thoughts of the character. You don't have to act them <laughs> like you're, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, Henry V. <laughs> you know, just like chill. It's a different way of communicating your character. Um yeah, it's, this is a hard sell to people. And, and, and there's so many stories of that. I mean, you know, again, they tend to be old Hollywood stories when there was so much production of film and so much more opportunity to create stars and you had such a great super supported star system. But like Marilyn Monroe on the set of Prince and the Showgirl and she's working with all these top mainly stage actors. Um, yes, um, in the, so Olivia. The, Lawrence Olivier's star is 
starring and directing um, opposite her. So and he comes, he comes to hate her and to think of her as totally, totally incompetent because mm-hmm. she's always late and she's always drugged out. And she's all, you know, she right. seems like she's doing nothing. And then finally, I think it's Sybil Thorndike who's just like, but don't you see, Larry? <laughs> I can't do the accent, but just imagine the most upper crust English accent. Um <laughs> Basically saying she's the only one here who knows how to act for the camera. Can't you tell yeah. that when you look at the footage? The she's rushes? the only yeah. one good. She's the only <laughs> one coming across. And he, of course, never did believe it. So he gives an atrocious performance with his awful, I don't know, what kind of accent he's trying to have. It's terrible. <laughs> he's completely charmless. He's just appalling. He gives one of the most appalling screen performances ever. And she's marvelous and luminous and perfect. Yep. Justice. It's just, it is. It was a great moment of rough justice in movies. Yeah, yeah. So that's exactly right. Can you be, can you commune with the camera? And that not everyone can do it. And they don't teach that. There are not usually Mm -hmm. classes for that. So I always think that's interesting. Why don't they do acting classes for theater? Sometimes they do for theater and then for, you know, for for film film television. Because each is going to be very different. Um, But I'm still not sure that can be taught. I'm not sure either. Yeah. <laughs> really I mean, not. Just some, some people know and some people, you know, you can hint to them, but they still can't do it. How do you register everything in your eyes? Oh, you're not right. even moving your head. Uh, right. <laughs> I, don't I don't think I don't think you can take classes in that. Yeah. <laughs> no. And this, but this is back to our like sort of uh, question about why it's ideologically suspect. This is another reason. Like you said, it's a, a great deal of uh, star quality is unteachable. And this seems mm. very unfair in a democratic society that believe, <laughs> professes to believe in merit, you know, et cetera. It's like, sorry, stars really are often just born. <laughs> And this is that's a hard pill to swallow. You know, it doesn't fit with our, I don't know, American way of thinking about ourselves or the world. Yeah, it seems to strike right at the heart of the just just terrible unfairness of everything. Yes. <laughs> and you do feel that when you go to L.A., you feel very much that people are sitting around slightly posed as if knowing the legends of Hollywood, that people were just picked out like supposedly <laughs> hey oh you God. i could i think you've got star quality and all uh-huh. of a sudden hey baby you're a star that was the legend of lana turner supposedly false but it's such a great one mm-hmm. she was sitting in the drugstore at what was it Schwab? Schwab? schwab's maybe schwab's yeah where actors would gather and she was just sitting there and she just looked so she had the com- combination when she was young girl next door regular girl and sex bomb mm-hmm. and they, a guy came up and said hey you want to be a star supposedly gene tierney was on a tour of i forget which studio maybe paramount just a, as a as a you know just a person touring the studio as a tourist and yeah. uh, you know a casting director came up and said you want can we do a <laughs> test you're so just stunning admittedly that could just be you're so beautiful let's see how you look on film yep but those lead to these careers that just rocket upward and so in la you'd, you'd always be the have this weird feeling and you could see that others had it who were posing around you at nightclubs and coffee shops <laughs> and everyone was kind of aware you're inches from that moment where that you've always known would happen <laughs> where, where you're suddenly pegged as having star quality you know and pg woodhouse who's brilliant and worked in hollywood for a while made that the center of his stories oh my god uh, people either either truly or it was a ruse getting suddenly tapped on the shoulder by an agent or a producer or something and being told they had star quality and thinking <laughs> yes they just know somehow <laughs> Oh they can God. see star quality, and I clearly have it. Um, so, 
So I think that it's part myth, but part based on reality that certain people who don't seem like they've ever worked hard or had any experience acting and suddenly they're they're rich and famous and doing interviews. And where are you? You know, yes. the, the deep unfairness. And of course, it's a horrifyingly corrupt capitalist system um, for a while there. And what, especially in the 50s and 60s in, in, in like Marxist theory, it's public enemy number one. And in third third world cinema, theor- theorizing about a third cinema, oh, yeah. it's Hollywood cinema is the worst cinema because it's the most ideologically corrupt and dangerous oh, for of sure. all the cinemas. Yeah. For and sure. the, star, the star is the leading figure of that cinema oh it's the it's the delivery device of the of the worst oh, ideology but I, you yes. know this this goes back to it's it, it i you know it's not just like the structuralists or the post-structuralists like i really always blame the frankfurt school it's gramsci mm-hmm. you know it's walter benjamin who 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 condemned the star system specifically mm-hmm. the cult of the female star um for uh-huh. trying to shove the aura back into motion pictures <laughs> <laughs> this aura we right. joyfully ditched with the advent of mass culture um you know so stop uh-huh. that. Um, he, you know, denouncing sort of art for art's sake and with it all, you know, thinking for him, stardom was part of that art for art's sake, like decadent, the, the heels of the decadent movement, decadent with a capital D, um, which, you know, for all of those sort of like early Marxists, what became the aesthetic of fascism and war. Now, mm-hmm. I think it, it's a little unfair <laughs> um, <laughs> to blame stardom for the Third Reich, but um, it, it's not not unrelated um but you know right. same, same thing yeah yeah gramsci as well condemned all those early uh italian divas um for the same reasons you know and everything that people liked that was sort of like over the top and uh having to do with something feminine um mm. was gonna be bad for you <laughs> mm. if it was it was over the top but sort of energetically masculine then it's okay then it's the energy of the proles but if it right. was like a, a lady picture with a, a star <laughs> a lady star the, the men's star is okay Chaplin's okay. Machista, the strong man, is okay. But like the Italian divas are not okay. Um, uh-huh. All of the vamps from from Hollywood, they're bad too. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing how this also fell, fell uh, across gender lines, but <laughs> or wow. on on gender lines. Yeah, funny how and that we happens. never see that happening. Yeah, that's so striking. Yeah. <laughs> well, as you pointed out, you know that stardom is itself feminizing, making yourself the object of the gaze, etc. Um, yeah. The ultimate object of the gaze is supposedly the feminine feminizing, you know, according to, you know, psychoanalytic and feminist film theory, mm. um, at least in its most basic kind of Laura Mulvey visual pleasure sure. and narrative cinema for those of you keeping score at home and want to go right out <laughs> at <laughs> film theory, bingo, Baby. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. <laughs> that offering yourself up as a kind of passive um, object to be stared at and lusted over is, yeah. you know, fundamentally feminine. You know, that's the feminist, the feminine position. And, you know, sure. they, 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 they've been interesting, an interesting star analysis of, say, dancer Gene Kelly, who always over overstressed the athleticism of dance and the and the kind of look how muscled out I am and yes. he's been analyzed in terms of a kind of fundamental anxiety about the feminizing quality of especially his stardom because they often stripped him down or put him in super tight clothes so you could see the muscles yes. and so he had to be constantly like killing himself <laughs> doing dangerous stunts or he did he literally did a, a documentary about how dance was just another form of athletics and he's got like oh, Mickey God. Mantle there throwing a baseball <laughs> and saying see how he throws that that's just like a dancer would do and you're like oh gene 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 wow compensation oh, but, yeah, <laughs> overcompensating 
are you gonna do? How nervous are you about this? Do you think Fred Astaire goes around fretting about whether he's macho? Where, no. What's wrong with you, man? But it was the yeah. you know it was the forties, fifties. There was a lot of tension around that. Yes, as you yeah. I, well, Burton too, and I, I think you know we also kind of forget how uh, sort of a disreputable acting was in general. Yeah. So you know, I mean, so you know, Richard Burton's always going to be my example because he's my favorite male star. But um, he, you know, he comes from a coal mining family in Wales, and he gets gets kind of picked up by this fancy Englishman. And um, so to even like, you know, learn to be on the stage and sort of like speak English so beautifully, you know, this was all kind of like pansy to him. And he was forever half embarrassed that he was mm-hmm. good at this. And then, you know, multiply that by film stardom, even less respectable than being on the stage. And it's just like, oh, God, you know, how humiliating. <laughs> so- yeah, and you just to see him gulping liquor is to know there's something yeah. fundamentally eating at this guy. <laughs> yes. Exactly. And it's not just Elizabeth Taylor. It's, <laughs> it's something more. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, yeah. Wow. Your favorite, your favorite male star is Richard Burton. I oh, did not easily. know this. Really? Oh my God. Really? Yes. By far. By far. I, I, you have never told me this. I would swear. You're kidding. That's I am a- shocked, shocked to the core for some reason. I don't I've even know like why. Seven, why am I shocked? I have no idea because he's so up my alley. I mean, he's got that gone to hell glamour thing. That's very much my jam. That's, that um, is true. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've got like seven Richard Burton biographies on my shelf. I don't, you know, he's a, uh, I love his, he's witty and wry and sarcastic and, you know, extremely attractive. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I uh, I kind of like his the gone to seedness of him. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You do love that. You do. I love do it. love it. <laughs> so, uh, Dolores yeah. is never more excited about stardom um, than when it completely goes to seed, where all of a sudden it starts looking really kind of tatty mm. and it's aging. It's my Quite favorite. badly, usually. <laughs> and she's just like, show me that movie where it's all gone to hell in the 1960s. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> up, burned out, and ugly. <laughs> that is extremely my jam. Uh, but yeah. of course, he's, he's also the consort of Elizabeth Taylor. Yes. And all, even though she married, you know, a million other times, but he's the one everyone thinks of. So they're well, like... Eh, do you not think it is significant? Because I do that, you know, Elizabeth Taylor gets blamed for his downfall and self-hatred. Yes. Right. And it's like, of course, like, I mean, first of all, he was a huge boozer before he ever met Elizabeth Taylor. She did not introduce him to the drink. Um, and like, I, you know, it was his decision to pursue. He was in the rope. He was in. It's not like she made him be a film star. Um, mm-hmm. He got cast in Cleopatra before knowing her. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, all this stuff, like, of course, it's the figure of a woman that has to represent his sell outness, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And this is, I just think like, of course, like uh, Elizabeth Taylor epitomizes everything we think of that is bad about stardom. It's founded mm-hmm. on like no talent. Um, mm-hmm. Although obviously she has great performances. Uh, you know, it's all about exterior beauty. Um, we think of her as like extremely frivolous with all the diamonds and the dogs, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't agree with these assessments, but these are sort of the <laughs> surfle level like connotations <laughs> of Elizabeth Taylor. So I love that Liz, Liz is just like the big walking mess of Hollywood who corrupts this poor, formerly pure coal mining soul. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and theater star. Yeah, the argument theater is star. always 
she stole him kind of from the theater, which is crazy, but that he was yes. considered this, the great, great actor, the inheritor of the mantle of, I don't know who all, but everyone who is considered yes. the greatest actor of their era. Sure. Gilgood, yeah. Olivier, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 And then and then he's making the VIPs with Elizabeth Taylor and a million other movies. Exactly. And everyone's going, what the fuck's going on? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And their conspicuous consumption was more conspicuous than anyone's maybe before or since. I mean, it was yeah. just a diamond buying partying insane yachting (laughs) that really you'd even be hard put to rival now and we're in pretty pretty damn decadent times but yeah so and you know she her scandals that some would argue just kept her famous almost artificially long after she's given her best performances which which she occasionally did she'd give great performances if she was handled just right had just the right role she'd be great yes um but yeah she also gave a lot of terrible performances (laughs) and nothing could stop the juggernaut of elizabeth taylor's stardom it just went on and on oh no i mean it's hilarious to tell this to students you know they think like whatever brangelina is a big scandal it's like okay elizabeth taylor was denounced on the floor of congress (laughs) right by the pope by the pope (laughs) like like you don't even you can't even register that level of stardom anymore like that mattered to people it will never matter that much again you know um no it's hard to imagine anyone can care that much or or uh, you know official dumb can could ever care that much again no no absolutely not and i you know i think her stardom has everything to do with sort of being on the eve of the sexual revolution and this great Mm. social change and obviously she embodied like a lot of those at least sort of uh, issues around the sexual revolution if not greater political change um so yeah but anyway yeah that's right she told she told that story she and richard burton went off to mexico to to play for a couple of months between films and she said we left and we were we were it. We were the top. And we came back and all of a sudden we were passe. Yes. It was like, because they came back and it was, I don't know, 66 six, or six. seven. Yeah. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden it's like everything, the whole culture is moving in another direction and we aren't, we aren't it anymore. Right. Um, even though she managed to sort of stay it. I mean, she's the one, the one star who comes out about AIDS, you know, in raising money and et cetera for AIDS and being very outspoken about supporting the gay community. Isn't she the first one? Oh, by far. She's the first, I think, famous person to ever say AIDS out loud. Yeah. yeah. And she, right. took, she took Reagan to task for it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think Elizabeth Taylor had a really, not a really interesting, a kind of, <laughs> yeah, okay, an interesting career in life. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the films weren't good. After kind of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, then like, it is a it's, barren yeah. wasteland of like, <laughs> really, really. really bad, like Warren Beatty co-starring vehicles, you know? <laughs> But I do, I sort of put, I personally, I mark the the sort of beginning of the sexual revolution or sort of the end with Cleopatra and also the end of the star system. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. You know, I mean, yeah, at one point, Cleopatra is the only film being made on the Fox lot. Right. That's insane. Mm. (laughs) They put all their eggs in that basket. Yeah, that was a bad, bad movie. (laughs) Yes, that's right. She does seem to like mark the end of an epoch, if you will. But she also carries on as like the most famous representative of that era and and manages to parlay it somehow. So she doesn't 
She doesn't yes. kind of fade away and just become a mere nostalgia. No, no. Trip. She you made know, a she perfume. Stays- <laughs> yes. Yeah, she becomes. <laughs> she makes a lot of moves that get made a lot after her. Yeah, she becomes the entrepreneur who's got you know product to sell. Yeah, and she becomes a spokesperson for causes. Yeah, um, yeah, and she hangs around with famous politicians, famous other other famous people. She becomes has that you know famous for being at the the great the great party events and that kind of thing. Right, right. Yeah, yeah so it's yeah. an interesting life and yeah, but I yeah, I I think we could take her as kind of the last star, you know, mm. the last like true product of the system who's sort of like major events in her stardom mark the ends and beginnings of major kind of movements in stardom. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I'd buy that. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, and what what would you say her star what is her star? image her star persona oh man that's hard it's a lot She's of opaque for me i don't quite get her that's interesting what it, can you say more about that well i mean i read i, I read just re- remember people characterizing her in b- different ways like one talking about how oh, i forget what i read she was she's the kind of dark um, um border femme fatale figure and mm-hmm. i was kind of like eh, she doesn't seem quite like, I can't imagine her in a film noir. She, she, exactly. She's, she's never been in one that I know of. No, you're And she right. would have been wrong in one. So I'm kind of like, that doesn't seem right. I don't know what she is, really. It's, it's hard, hard for me to describe. That's a really good point. I think you're right. She's not a femme fatale. She's always been in, she's always been in roles where she has more kind of interiority, but also more ties to like, she's kind of like a failed bourgeois, you know, like she's, she's always marriageable, but like Mm -hmm. never quite works in that role because her like sexual appetite is like way too far off the charts. It's always, Mm -hmm. you know, in the films. Um, and, And there's, to me, I mean, after the arc of her career and taking Elizabeth Taylor as a whole, to me, she's like the star that stands for stardom. She is she's diamonds and yachts and she's the whore of Babylon, which is yeah. Hollywood, you know? Yeah. So she's just this like big walking be bedazzled <laughs> like mm, um yes. earth mama or just like that i don't know she's it's, she's half of the earth because if you kind of read about her, she's she's quite earthy. Her mm. even her like body is very like I, this is a horrible descriptor, but like everyone always compares her to a peasant. Yeah, because <laughs> she, you yeah. know, she's got that beautiful face, uh, but all with like kind of delicate features. But there's also something very hearty about her, like big bosom <laughs> and stout. You know, like yes, she can bear yes. many sons. <laughs> right, <laughs> so, right. And she, right, like right. in her in her personal life, she could really like kick off her shoes and like pee in the bushes, and you, you hear mm-hmm. that a lot. So I think it has become part of her enough. So there's something about like being this. Um, she stands for like excess to me you know uh, that seems right because yeah. even if you look at you know the first role that signals she's going to be a huge star is national velvet and she's like i don't know 11 she's yes. incredibly young but she has such excess and the role is all about that she's so excessive she faints from emotion or or vomits from emotion this is central to her character and she's so obsessed with horses yes. that they do a series of shots of her that are our saint shots, uh, her gazing upward and saying, I dream of, I pray to God to give me horses. Yes. And this is like going to be a tough role. And she, as a kid, according to the legend, wanted that role and 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 trained herself for that role. They said, you're too short. You, you look too young. Yep. And she set herself to grow two inches. And she was just crazy what she did yes. to make sure she got that role as if she recognized this is this is my role and yes. it's going to help define a persona. So she always also has this 
there's too much of something, <laughs> whether it's, you know, yes. it's that or, or what she's, she's got too much sexual energy and Butter- Butterfield 8 that seems to overwhelm everything. Oh, and- yeah. And same with um, Place in the Sun, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Um, yeah. You know, most of her iconic roles is like she's, it's like the sexual side is just like, t- it's like really upset the order <laughs> of her world, you know? Right, right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And it's okay, the 50s, well, so yeah, go on. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, we, could, we, should, we should go through just a couple of our favorites and try to just talk about it. And you'll all have to put up with it because we're going to talk old Hollywood stars and you just have to suck it up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> great. All right. We both have in common a fascination for Vivian Lee. Yes. The first time, um, I remember the first time we went out for drinks, you told me that like mm. Vivian Lee was your favorite star. And I was like, oh, we're going to be friends. <laughs> yes. And then, and then we had dinner at your house and you had a picture, a framed, a framed yeah. image of Vivian Lee on the wall. And I'm like, holy shit, she's up this game. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not that usual. I mean, she's not, I mean, you know, she's famous. There's name recognition there, but that's not, you know, at, at Target, they sell posters of like Marilyn no. Monroe and Audrey yeah, Hepburn, yeah, yeah. even Chaplin. But like Vivian Lee's a little niche, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 And if people have heard of anything, they've heard of her in Gone with the Wind. Yeah. And maybe Streetcar Named Desire, those are considered her two great, great film roles, even though she made a number of other movies in which she's great. Right. Right. Um, they're not well known anymore. So, yeah. No. So you'll have people will kind of go, is she the one in Gone with the Wind? Something like that. So, yeah. So it isn't a stardom like Elizabeth Taylor's where everyone, almost everyone's probably sort of heard of her anyway. Right. Right. So, so why do you love Vivian Lee, Eileen? Because, you know, and it's a little bit related, though she seems so different from, from uh, Elizabeth Taylor, but it, it's, mm-hmm. there's such a wild excess in her. Mm-hmm. That's con- but it's contained in such she's such a she's very very slender she's just a perfection of delicate beauty mm-hmm. um, that it's mesmerizing and you know recent we've been re- you know, we've both been reading some recent works they're coming out with more books lately of, on Vivian Lee including academic books studying her 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 affect etc oh her my career. god those are so bad I shouldn't and say that terrible. wow oh no they're <laughs> terrible and 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 we agreed that why they're terrible is they want to downplay her beauty and downplay her madness uh, yep. she famously um, developed a serious mental illness I think by po- they call it manic, manic depression but bipolar would be now right is that right yeah that's right um, and she but she was well known for it then she was having like public enough breakdowns that it was being covered by the press and you know it you know she gets fired from a film elephant walk and it was all very publicly played out mm-hmm. um that combination of madness and beauty that used to be the defining traits that you read about immediately especially in this academic text they wanted to say let's let's really talk about seriously about vivian lee because it's wrong to talk about her in terms of madness and beauty and i'm like oh god and sure enough they'd be talking about look at how organized this woman was we have her (laughs) old date books and she could plan anything and you're like who cares oh i I hate that shit i know and it's just uh, it's just essay after essay that's just blithering in its idiocy. Let's yes. bypass all those iconic, amazing qualities. qualities that define her stardom, so we can focus on how well she could plan 
parties and shit. Yes. Wow. Or, or this is always the line, right? Well, she worked. Well, we'll, yes. we'll, we'll tell you how seriously she worked. We're like, yes. we know she worked. Okay. Like I, she has a very impressive, you know, filmography, mm. a list of stage credits. Like you don't need to prove to us that she worked. This is so like the only measure of, of sort of value is the like value that we have Protestant now. work ethic, you know, like how depressing. No. And, like she is And then you think. And that you think you can get Protestant work ethic and Vivian Lee together is just <laughs> shocking. Love it. Because she's she's all she's just so such a figure of overwhelming feeling. And of course, that's what you see in her roles. I mean, in you know, the whole way of defining the Scarlett O'Hara character is she's a split personality who's inherited these contrasting qualities from her parents. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, all this delicate southern lady and she and she has to look that part all as much as possible and the other is this rude <laughs> um you know kind of lower class irish that managed to succeed in the world of you know the, the horrifying plantation world gone with the wind yes yes we know it's a deplorable film yada 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 we're talking star- we're talking stardom here right so so she right away gets defined by a character who is riven right down the middle and is maddened by the emotions um <laughs> that dominate she's incredibly ambitious she's she's got all this anger she's got all this passion and rage that's going all over the place um and that's but and it's countered in this era where she's not supposed to express any of it um so she just becomes this figure of absolute fascination throughout the entire movie she's just flashing all over the place yes (laughs) flashing Um, is a great word to characterize vivian lee i think flashing is 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 it (laughs) <laughs> and then if you just take it to, you know, if you take it to uh, Streetcar Named Desire, mm-hmm. here she is, a tragic, you know, kind of Southern Belle figure who's even more delicate and vapory and wearing all of these, you know, <sighs> wispy bits of fabric hanging off of her. And she's, got, of course, been brought low in the world and is having to stay with her crude brother-in-law, played by Marlon Brando. Mm-hmm. You know the, the drill. But it's the same thing. It's, it's, a, a, it's just now played in a much more tragic mode where overwhelming feeling in the key scenes like when you know she reminiscences about the great love of her life her her young husband who she's she catches him with another man Mm -hmm. or when she does this scene of longing with a what is he a young messenger boy someone Mm -hmm. comes to call (laughs) and she basically talks herself into not seducing him um something like i'm being good tonight but she does this moment of just the most intense yearning and longing toward this young young man young <laughs> yes man. yes um so that's what it is and to look at her pristine perfection when young and looking so quiet um and so composed and so poised and to see coming out of her eyes and her face like just worlds <laughs> disturbing yes. worlds of of banked down depression, I mean, expression that just aren't going to be able to stay banked down. And you know it. Yes. Yes. I, all of that. <laughs> I totally agree. Um, yeah. I think there's, there's something really unique about her, her anger and mm-hmm. her uh, desperation for sure. Um, her face, and this might be like, even just like reading into it, knowing about her, the bipolar disorder, but to me, you could turn her face like Garbo's and it's like a different person. There yeah. are like four different views of it. And it's really interesting. It's like a, a, a cut stone that, you know, reveals a totally different facet. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so she can be like so so many things can flash across her face in one scene, which I find amazing. Um, and there's just something about her attitude towards life. I don't know if it's a positive or like <laughs> I don't know if I patterned my life after this, but there's something about her that's like super wry, almost as if she has like access to some divine comedy. Mm-hmm. And to me, she like like she holds within her this uh, kind of idea of like I I am so full of life and like vital um but on the other hand i might have seen behind the curtain and i don't know if there's a point <laughs> so right. it's you know it's super dark but it's this oscillation between these things and you know i always say like i don't think you could have an american st- she's british um yeah. i don't think you could have an american star this dark uh, during the time mm-hmm. that she was famous there's something about her like her slight foreignness allows her to kind of like get away with this in a way that mm-hmm. i don't think an american quite could at this time um, oh i think i think that's right she has a great comment she made in some interview where she says well i'm a scorpio and we sting yes. and sting and sting ourselves to death and you're like what star <laughs> <laughs> ever gave an interview and said something that occult and dark and, right. and yet she said it lightly like yep that's what she, i am she you know would. about us yes. <laughs> she was she was exactly like that so if you were at all feeling like you're frustrated and not having full expressivity in your life <laughs> vivian lee is the star for you <laughs> exactly. you just look at her and you're like Yep. <laughs> I know exactly. All right. Well, I was, uh, yes. L- let me tell my, my, one of my favorite stories about Vivian Lee and Lee Marvin. Yes. They, they were starring together in a, a movie called Ship of Fools. She's playing what had become her, her typical older woman character where, you know, she's, um, what, um, kind of lonely, sexually starved and, um, looking back at a, a kind of glorious youth as a, as a great beauty. And it's, it's faded now and she's grappling with this very ferociously and, and very sarcastically. She, so she gives this great performance in what is generally, you know, what looks, it's a very stiff movie. But at any rate, she had scenes with a co-star of all people, Lee Marvin. And, you know, at the time she was super, she was headed toward a major breakdown, which basically happens behind the scenes. And at any rate, they had a mm-hmm. big scene where he's supposed to make a really crude play for her. And she attacks him ferociously. And she's tiny and he's big. And she attacks him with her, her her dancing slipper and just beats the hell out of him. Well, she beat him so badly that she like cut his face with face with the heel of her shoe. And his reaction was to love her forever. More. He, he thought she was the greatest woman, the best actress, the most ferocious personality. It was like total respect because she had just gone for it. And she, and she he wasn't even faking like being yeah. beaten down by this woman who was going to kill him. Uh, um, people would pay for so, that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's the best. It's, you know, all of her scenes are the best scenes in the movie by far. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so that kind of ferocity in, the, again, this very could, she could often look very, very prim and proper, always perfectly dressed and put together, always with these little matching handbags and stuff. Right. Um, and and yet, this is all seething <laughs> inside <laughs> her and would come, you know, again, the word flashing out of her eyes. And so she became this fascinating figure beyond just performance. And in her case, she actually was quite a good performer. Mm-hmm. Um, and... So there's this quality, again, it's another kind of quality of excess. And excess is, I think, a good one for stardom, but it seems like it's particular depending on the star. Yes. But, you know, Dolores and I found this tidbit that really fascinated us about um, Sean Young in Blade Runner, that the, the 
the I think it was the director was trying to find someone who had the quality of Vivian Lee mm-hmm. of a kind of intense sexuality under a kind of perhaps, you know, uh, quiet, um, shellacked surface, perhaps, but would seem to be seething underneath. And that's how, and when he saw Sean Young, he was the only one who was convinced yes. um, that she was the one and everyone else was like, what? She's good looking, but yeah. And, oh. but of course he's right. Nailed it. <laughs> Cause, yeah. Cause Sean mm-hmm. Young is another of the great stars who should have been who was like for a hot minute and then her whole career collapses she's considered insane so she does have this kind of quality of seething and and you know she's quickly her career just is drowned in mockery and dismissal and Mm -hmm. yet she she had everything to be a great star and was already had already been kind of modeled and recognized as a continuation of a vivian lee effect that you know is otherwise missing (laughs) yes I mean, if only someone had managed that career, you know, I mean, I just like, I mourn for it. I would have loved to have seen her in, in the old studio machine. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. So they would have found a million roles that would have been a perfect showcase for her. And instead, she there she is desperately running around town wearing a cat suit, cat women makeup, trying to oh, score God. the role of Catwoman. And you're like, what? Oh, my yeah. God. OK, perhaps perhaps a segue here. So mm. online, Sean Young has her own YouTube channel. It's called <laughs> Ms. Pariah. And oh. she has this is what's allowable in the digital age. She has it very intriguingly <laughs> edited together the sort of footage of her greatest humiliations, which include Whoa. that. Yep. Which include, so she was, yeah. she was originally <sighs> cast as Catwoman in Batman, but like fell off a horse or something. And oh, so they right. put, well, who did they put it in? Michelle Pfeiffer? Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she was, tr- before it was like settled that Michelle Pfeiffer was going to be in it. Um, she tried to like get the part back basically. And right. she showed up on Joan Rivers in a Catwoman costume and at the studio to see right. Tim Burton, who mm-hmm. I don't think would see her. I think that was pro- part of the problem. Right. And she, she showed up dressed as Catwoman. <laughs> and um, so she has footage of all of this, including the visit to like, I think it was Warner Brothers. Oh my God. Yeah. And she edited it together and then put this kind of like, almost like, <laughs> Remember when that Gregorian chant music was really big in like the 90s? <laughs> yes. she, she put this like Gregorian chant music over it and has like written in script on the screen, like, we are just trying to heal this mess. Oh my God. Oh <laughs> it is my the God. most, it's like pretty profound, but it's also like uh, as interesting as it is, like. Uh-huh. I wish I never saw that. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, but this is what's allowable in the digital age. Yeah, and it, that's like needles in the oh. eyes. I mean, that will hurt so bad. Oh, my God. The humiliation. Yeah. Oh. oh, the democratization of culture <sighs> might not be a good thing. <laughs> so. Holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and you were telling me that there's a, a nice segue to to Catherine Deneuve talking yes. about I, I hate selfies. So, yeah. What is that? What's that story? Yeah. Well, Deneuve just said, you know, selfies are the death of mystery. Um, She says, I have some... Um, She says, you know, it's wonderful to be able to take photographs, but I detest selfies. It makes everything banal. It's terrible, (laughs) this notion that we're always in the process of looking at ourselves, doing something and not living. Um, So, yeah, and, you know, she also has the the line about people being famous for not doing anything. But I think what's more interesting about Deneuve is that um, you know, she understands that overexposure... Uh, sort of devalues the star quality. So not only are you seen absolutely everywhere at everything, but we know the details of your daily lives and that Mm -hmm. makes you 
too much like us. You know, Mm -hmm. you have to be a little bit like us, um, at least since, you know, people argue um, that the silent stars were allowed to be sort of gods. And then Mm -hmm. when sound cinema came, they they fell from gods to mortals and they had to be a combination of extraordinary and ordinary. Now Mm -hmm. Deneuve says, basically, you're reducing everything to ordinariness. We don't need to know what you had for for breakfast. We don't need to know about your diet plan. You know, you're going to you're going to devalue your star image. And I, I I think she's right for one. And then it kind of like the whole paradigm shifts. And then we, we tend to sort of instead um, just be interested in the details of daily life instead of in uh, these sort of like grand images. Now you can say, that's great. Like, (laughs) uh, Mm. you know, the daily life of humanity is really interesting. I I don't (laughs) think so, but sure. You know, that, that would be sort of the easy answer, but then you get the Kardashians who really are as banal as it gets. Like, yes, they have shit tons of money, but they don't say or do anything interesting. They just like talk about, you know, getting their makeup done and mm. I don't know what they're going to wear, what kind of spanks they buy and like what yeah. they, what kind of shake they drink to lose weight, you know, could yeah. not be more banal. No, it's product endorsement. And, and I really feel like it, it's very much the crossover with now rich and famous can just mingle. The, the two seem just to be mingling together same. as same qualities. Mm-hmm. If you, so that's why there are, there's millions of magazines of just, you know, like People Magazine and Us Magazine and all of those where they're, they're stressing. There's, there's that Us Magazine, the stars, they're just like us. And you see them in their horrible, whatever, sweatpants or, yeah, getting, buying coffee, walking dogs, et cetera. And it's supposed to humanize them. And, but, it, and, and more and more like rich people, TV stars, YouTube stars, whatever stars. And, and the, the, the joke is everyone's like, I don't know who these people are. Right. I, I don't know who they are. Or if you look at the 50 most beautiful people in the world, it's no longer an obsession with beauty, which was a huge deal about the majority of stars and now it's who's a good person who gives to charity that well that's a kind of beauty so we'll name them as one of the most beautiful people or this person is rich and has taken it to the gym and had a lot of plastic surgery Mm -hmm. so this person will be one of the most beautiful people and so you kind of this is a kind of weird capitalist version of democracy where if you can get yourself in the public eye in some way, looking a certain way, having a certain kind of access, you mm-hmm. count too. And the crossover point is the Kardashians. Yes. Money, money got you everywhere. Yeah. Right. And you, right. And you were sort of good looking and you sort of had an entrepreneurial quality and yeah, and the rest is history. Yes, and it, it might be evolving even a step further. I mean, in many ways, it's the sort of, uh, uh, you know, Andy Warhol's in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes, for 15 minutes yeah. coming to fruition. Um, mm-hmm. And then I, so I'm going to get a little academic here, but I teach this article uh, written by a guy named Mark Andreevich called When Everyone Has Their Own Reality Show. Right, right. And, and he argues like, well, the future is if everyone's being recorded and, and sort of performing for whatever audience... <laughs> No one is watching except right. the machine. <laughs> He's like, yeah. it's, a, it's like a giant DVR where you save all the shows, you know, uh-huh. and the, but no one's actually watching them. And the sort of like fantasy is that like, yeah, you can call up anything at any time, um, mm-hmm. but no human audience is actually watching. <laughs> you know, all we have are the that giant eyes of Big Brother, the machine. <laughs> Well, and it also removes something which which which, it was very touching in in this one of the startup classes I taught. I can't remember if it was the one you were in. Um, uh, There was we were we were doing the we were reading something and it was all about the the, the ideological horror of stardom. That's a lot of the scholarship (laughs) deals with that. 
boring. And there was this one lone hand and, and this one student and this guy said, um, you know, I think there's something really good about stars because I came from this really nowhereville place, really rural. I was poor. I didn't have anything. And I didn't know who I, or what I was. And yes. I could look to models for how to be an individual in this world. And they were these hu admittedly huge, iconic, you know, <laughs> removed models. But nevertheless, they gave me something. And I'd look around my own world and all I could think is I don't want to be I don't want to be anything I see. God, yes. So what, what do you use for a model if you don't if you don't have that? No, that's so beautiful. And like, this is a much way to, better way to end than on the all-seeing machine. <laughs> oh, that was good too. Oh, no, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, there's, you know, they're sort of like sites of imagination and aspiration. And I mean, to me, this is like the tremendous sort of like uh, positive is such a dumb word, but like there's so much potential in stardom. It's, it's a way to imagine your life as something other you know, mm -hmm. and you don't mm -hmm. have to like literally reenact the path of like Marilyn Monroe. I hope you don't. <laughs> but just like the, the idea that your life could be something else, I think is very powerful. Right. And we, you know, both of us are fans of a Jackie Stacy book and article where she talks, she, she went and interviewed a ton of working class British women about stars of the studio era, big female stars and said, and tried to, to try to figure out what they got out of identifying with stars. And she found that they did, you know, what might be called poaching. They took what they wanted or felt they needed. Yes. I want that way of Betty Davis's, you know, her stride that is both arrogant and, you know, and, but, and ferocious. And I need that in my life i'll take that mm -hmm. and it can be as simple as i love her hair i'm gonna take that <laughs> it's, it's a way of kind of looking at yourself at the same time and trying to decide what it is you you are and what you want to be and it's a way as you say to aspire i mean i totally lived that life i hated everything around yes. me when i was you know becoming a teen even as a child but becoming a teenager and going you have to pick something and looking around and going i hate everything <laughs> I hate everything. So I immediately turned to old Hollywood stars, especially for looks, and was into vintage clothes as fast as I could get in because I just, uh, it was such a bad wise. It's a wise choice. <laughs> <laughs> During the, the 70s. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. there can be much more profound things. It's like when you're trying to go, wait, I don't even know what I am yet. I look at I look at myself and I don't know what that is. It's 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 not even conforming into anything. Mm -hmm. And you you have some standard for comparison of other faces you have looked at. Yes. And been able to identify better. Yes. I can't, I can't agree more. I mean, yeah. Stars for me are, they're whatever. They're my religion. They're my dearest. <laughs> like <laughs> no one can ever take them away. <laughs> they're the thing that like brings me comfort, lets me hope, lets me imagine, you know, I mean, uh, tremendously valuable. I would, I would not even know why total like i don't know mind inside personal belief system would be completely different without them <laughs> so yeah yeah which seems weirdly enough a radical thing to say now i can't you're like the yeah. only person i know who would say that because that's that's that would be regarded as like truly a shameful thing that oh, you're God. looking there oh. i don't know where we're supposed to be looking though i'm always puzzled like what no. are we looking what, what are we supposed to be looking at? I, don't I mean, know. Jesus, to, to sort of borrow a line from Richard Burton, <laughs> who speaks this in Equus, <laughs> you know, he's, he says, you know, I mean, this is part of, you know, the play Equus, but he says, you know, life is only comprehensible through dozens of local gods. And so mm -hmm. the stars are my dozens of local gods, you know, mm -hmm. they, it's, you know, same beauty of expression yeah. and <laughs> right. Saint Vivian of Anger, whatever. I, I'm not sure people think they have local gods or gods at all. Do you? What do you think? They should get I don't some. Know. 
They should get some. Yeah. <laughs> or by fault, default, some will be issued to you. Uh, yeah, right. Exactly. That's more depressing. <laughs> that is more- Go find your gods. Go find your gods. We're yeah. not going to get a better ending line than that. All so right. I think we should stop. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Dolores. That was fabulous. Thank you for having me. 